Well, good morning, Covenant, and happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out here. I hope you know that you are valued, not just today, uh, but every day. Thanks for what you do. You know, if you've been here, you know we are looking at the prayer the Lord taught us. We often call it the Lord's Prayer, and we're doing so to foster or nurture the habit of prayer in our lives. You know, prayer is one of the means of grace that God has given to us. It's where he's promised to meet us. It's where he's promised to share his life with us. And we are blessed that he would give us this prayer, both as an example and for what it teaches us. And today we come to the last of the petitions of this prayer. The last petition, deliver us from evil. Well, today in our passage, they're going to be reading. It comes from a section of Mark, by way of context, where Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so he shows us Jesus' sovereignty over creation, where he commands the hurricane to be still, and it does immediately. We see his sovereignty over our human bodies as he heals the sick and the leper. And then we see his sovereignty over even life and death as he raises Jairus' daughter. But in our passage today, we see Jesus Christ's sovereignty over evil itself. So let me read from Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains. For he, was off, he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pig was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and to the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This is the word of God given to us for our benefit. Let's pray. Father, simply would you be the real teacher today by your spirit? And Lord, as a result of our time, my earnest prayer is that we come to see more intensely how much Jesus, how much you love us, and as a result, come to love Jesus more. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, in 1973, a movie came out starring Max Vansato and a 12-year-old girl by the name of Linda Blair. 
It was immediately a blockbuster. It became one of the highest grossing films of the time. And it was, without a doubt, one of the scariest movies at that time that I'd ever come across. And I gotta admit something to you today. I hate scary movies. I hate horror movies. I mean, and as a young boy, when this movie came out, it scared the heck out of me. Now, truth is, I never actually went to see it, but you couldn't avoid it. It was in every trailer before every other movie. It was in all the clips that were shown on the talk shows. It was in all the magazines, the pictures. And you were immediately confronted with this little girl who could spin her head 360 degrees who could levitate off the bed, who spoke in this weird, creepy voice of a man, and then worst of all, who was constantly vomiting out split pea soup. It was just awful. Now I know, there are a lot of people who love scary movies. But there are a lot of people who love Cleveland. It doesn't make it right. But here's... Sorry. I didn't expect that response. Gratuitous Cleveland slam. Um, But more importantly, here's why I bring this up. This is what I thought demon possession was all about, of course. And most importantly, this is what I thought an exorcism was all about. But today we come to our story, and it is interesting. It is intriguing. It is sensational. And it is a story about demon possession and about the existence of evil. And there is, in the midst of it, an exorcism, but it's like no other exorcism in history. And I want us to look at this story because I believe this story gives us insights into why we should pray this petition, Lord, deliver us from evil. Because this story tells us three important things. What evil is all about, how it operates in our lives, and most importantly, it gives us hope for curing evil in our lives and in the world. So let's dive in. First, let's look at the first one, what I call the peril of evil, or what evil is about. Now, by way of context, Jesus has just traveled from his home base to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the region inhabited by primarily Gentiles, or those who are not of the Jewish faith. And the very first thing that happens when he arrives, the moment, in other words, when he steps out of the boat, He is confronted by an evil spirit, actually an army of evil spirits. And right off the bat, what we have is another example of Scripture giving us or telling us there is such a thing as supernatural evil. Now, I mean, let's acknowledge what's true. In our world today, we don't like to believe that that's a thing. Supernatural evil is fine for movies or television or video games. But the modern view, the modern secular view, is that we can reduce what is obviously evil primarily to psychological and sociological factors. The idea of a devil, a supernatural evil force, is viewed as primitive, simplistic. It's simply the answer people give when they don't have a scientific or a rational explanation for something. But that's not how the biblical writers see things. The biblical writers are unapologetic in saying that evil at its root is real, personal, and it has a spiritual face. 
You know, it's interesting that there is a dispute regarding the translation of the last word of our petition in this prayer. Our translation, the English Standard Version, which we read, says, deliver us from evil. But you should know that the vast majority of translations, the vast majority of scholars, believe that the more accurate translation is, deliver us from the evil one. In other words, it's not generic, it's not general, it's personal. And I believe Jesus' disciples understood that. And that's why we read in 1 Peter, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, speaking of our need for spiritual armor, says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. To understand evil, you have to see that it has a face. It's personal. And if you don't believe in supernatural evil outside of us, you're probably going to have a trouble understanding and explaining our world. You know, in her memoir, Frances Perkins, who was Secretary of Labor under President Roosevelt, she was the first woman cabinet member. She writes of an encounter she had with President Roosevelt early in 1944 about the atrocities in Germany. And here's what she writes in her memoir. And President Roosevelt starts speaking. He says, Frances, have you ever read Kierkegaard? And Kierkegaard is a Christian, Danish theologian and philosopher. And she said, well, no, mostly just reviews of his writing. Well, he says, you ought to read him, he said with enthusiasm. It'll teach you about the Nazis. Kierkegaard explains the Nazis to me as nothing else ever has. I've never been able to make out why people who were obviously human beings, obviously educated, obviously refined, they like Mozart, for goodness sakes, could behave like this. They are human, but they behave like demons. Kierkegaard gives you an understanding of what it is that makes it possible for these Germans to be so evil. I mean, it's a remarkable passage. Because we know in the early 1940s, Jewish leaders were telling President Roosevelt and his cabinet about the atrocities. And here's the thing, they were not believed. They couldn't believe that humans were capable of this. And it wasn't until President Roosevelt read the writings of a Christian who gave him a biblical account of the supernatural and the spiritual root of evil that he could handle reality. And the thing is, we will never be able to handle reality without understanding this because we will be attacked and you won't know where the front is. But we also need to see, just as importantly, that supernatural evil has a goal. And that goal is to disintegrate, to pollute to enslave and distort and ultimately destroy all that God holds dear. Supernatural evil is seeking to disintegrate the things that God wants together. It seeks to disintegrate our bodies, our relationships, even creation itself. And I bring this up because I do not want us to be naive. Despite what we may see on TV or the movies, there is not one aspect of the demonic world that seeks even the tiniest fraction of good in this world. 
And that's why our passage is such a perfect picture of the intent and effects of evil. First, let's look at this man. I mean, the first thing we're told about him is he's controlled by demons. They controlled his speech. They controlled his actions. And because of that, he wore no clothes. In other words, he was stripped of dignity, stripped of security. He didn't live in a house. He was disconnected from family. He did not live within the walls of the city, disconnected from civilization and community. And he wandered among the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. I mean, experts say that this is a sign of complete mental breakdown. I mean, here's someone physically and mentally tortured, out of control, out of his mind. We have someone who has totally lost touch with his humanity. And if that's not enough, look at the pigs. I mean, everybody always asks, what's up with the pigs? And the thing is, nobody knows. There is no consensus. But here's the one thing that everybody knows for sure. When the demons enter the pigs, the pigs are immediately destroyed. They rush down the steep bank and are drowned, 2,000 strong. I mean, it's massive carnage. It's a massive destruction of life and also a massive destruction of the financial welfare of this community because that's what the pigs represented. They were money. This is all about the financial welfare of the community, which is now being destroyed. And here's the point, playing the role of Captain Obvious. There is nothing good about evil. The Bible never calls evil good. The Bible never says we should somehow accept evil and be thankful for evil. Evil has no mercy, no compassion, no sympathy, no regret. And that's why we can't play with it. And that's why we dare not think. We dare not get lulled into believing that life is neutral. Life is not neutral. There are supernatural dangers from which we need God's supernatural deliverance. Supernatural dangers that can only be defeated through the power of God by prayer. Prayer like this one. But then secondly, let's look at what we could call the hook of evil or how evil works in our lives. You know, I'm afraid the English translations using the term demon-possessed give us maybe a false sense of security when we read about this. It becomes easy in the sense to dismiss it in part. You know, that was back then. Yeah, things like that happened back then. But this is now. Except for two things I want us to know. First, the Greek word that describes demon-possessed people never really uses the term possessed. It's a simple Greek verb that basically is the word for demonize. These are demonized people. And second, there are a number of places in the Bible especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, where it says things to the effect, if you are proud, if you are bitter, if you are self-centered, if you let anger get the best of you, if you refuse to forgive, you're actually making yourself open to the influence of evil forces, the evil forces of this world. You are actually in some degree being influenced by Satan and his demons. In other words, you're being demonized. You see, the difference between this demon-possessed man and us is not a difference of quality. It's a difference of quantity. Because the same patterns are at work in our lives. Or to put it or approach it differently, evil's not just out there, but it's also in here. It's in me. It resides in my heart and your heart. And that's why Jesus said so bluntly in Matthew 15, for out of the heart, come evil thoughts, 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, or as Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it so brilliantly, the line between good and evil goes right down the middle of every human heart. And why is this important? Well, in his book, Praying the Lord's Prayer, J.I. Packard, the great theologian, put it this way. He said, the deliverance we need is not only or mainly from adverse circumstances, but from the spiritual evil within us that makes both adverse and favorable circumstances its springboard for attack. Sin in our hearts spawning all kinds of inclination to do something other than God's will and to love something or someone more than God himself is the source of our danger. Always and everywhere, the danger of being led astray by indwelling sin remains. You see, this is the hook. Satan takes our desires, the desires of our hearts, and tempts us to make anything other than the triune God the center of our lives. Even good things. Things like family, career, love, acceptance, And I believe that's why Peter keeps saying again in 1 Peter 5, humble yourself. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because our danger arises when in our pride we fail to acknowledge that the line between good and evil runs right through each of our hearts. And when we are not humble enough to see our constant need, our constant need, to cry out to the Lord, help, and pray the Lord, Lord, deliver me from this evil within as well as from without. And if we don't do that, folks, we will open ourselves up to Satan's work in our lives. And just like this man, maybe to a lesser degree, we will lose not only control, but we too will become enslaved to the true master that we have enthroned. And also, If we don't do this, we will become judgmental people, tribal people, us versus them people who perpetuate evil in the world by vilifying instead of loving those that we see as the problem, those that we see as the real evil. So what is our hope? How is this evil defeated? And here we need to see in our passage again, here's this man who's possessed by a legion of demons. And that word legion is a a Roman military term that at Jesus' time meant something around 6,000. So this man, possessed by an army of demons, gets into Jesus' presence. And here's what we need to notice. There is no struggle. There is no fight. Instead, in the presence of Jesus, this man immediately runs and he falls down on his knees, and the demons inside this man are immediately surrendering and pleading with Jesus not to torment, not to send them out of the country. Again, folks, this is like, unlike any other exorcism in history, nothing like the exorcist. I mean, look at the power here that Jesus displays. This is exactly like Jesus dealt with the hurricane when he simply said, be still, and immediately the sea went like glass. And not only that, he deals with the 6,000 demons the way he deals with one. There is no difference. He doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't roll up his sleeves and say, I adjure you by a higher power. He simply commands the spirit to come out. And when a legion 
of demons meet Jesus, there is absolutely no contest. They are totally at his mercy. And do you see what this means? It means that he is the sovereign Lord of the universe and has authority over evil itself, and he has the authority to deliver us from evil. Now, I know you can ask the question, as so many have throughout the centuries, why, as the sovereign Lord of the universe, doesn't he just end evil now? And there is great mystery there. But remember this, our understanding is not God's understanding, and our timing is not God's timing. And remember, too, that God always wants and acts for our good. And someday, as Peter says at the end of our passage in chapter 5, everything sad will become untrue. Every tear will be wiped away, and evil will be no more. And as a foretaste of that, what we see in our passage is a complete reversal of the effects of evil. And that's why Mark goes out of his way to show us the effects of Jesus' salvation. I mean, look at this man afterwards. He's free from demons in their control. He's sitting at Jesus' feet instead of wandering the tombs. He's wearing clothes instead of being naked. He's in his right mind. And he returns to his home with a purpose and a mission in life. It's an incredibly holistic picture of salvation. Everything has changed. And it is amazing, and it is wonderful. But do you know how it happens? It happens because at the end of the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus and this man exchange places. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is naked, stripped of his clothes. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is crying out and bleeding. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus is driven into the tombs, the tomb. And this is how Jesus dealt with evil. This is how Jesus destroyed the destroyer. What Jesus did was absorb evil and injustice and sin and death into himself. He died on the cross to pay for our sins so that someday he could wipe out evil without wiping out us. And that's the secret of how evil is defeated in our lives. Because only when you see what it cost him to defeat evil so that he could someday destroy evil without destroying you so it could heal you like he did this demonic so he could come with so you could come into your life in spite of everything that you've done wrong when you see the cost when you see him being willing to be naked and driven into the tomb for you that shows you how much he loves you that shows your infinite value to him And it's seeing this infinite cost that he paid in order to defeat evil that defeats evil in our lives. Because when you cling to that, you start to know and believe that you are loved and that you are delighted in. And then all the other things that you are tempted to make ultimate things, they no longer become your righteousness. They no longer become your glory. Their power over you has gone Folks, I don't care how messed up you are. I mean, look how messed up this man was. Look how, look how broken he was. Jesus sends him back into his land as an agent of redemption and healing. 
And no matter how messed up you are, plunge your messed upness into the grace of Jesus Christ, and you too can be a powerful tool of redemption in our world. And that's why we should pray this prayer, Lord, deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Lord, today that's our prayer. And we thank you that you've given it to us and for all that it means. Lord, deliver us from evil and imprint on our hearts the need that we have to fall on our face and say help because we need it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.